It is my privilege and my pleasure to welcome to our pulpit this morning Dave Smethurst. And uh, Dave needs very little introduction. Uh, most of you know Dave and have known him for well, uh, well over probably 10, 15, 20 years. Ever since I've been coming here, Dave's been here. Before I came here, you used to come here. So Mike was here when you first came, right? And um, Dave is a beloved, beloved uh, member of the family. And uh, we will be receiving an offering for Dave and for his ministry at the end of the service. And uh, we'll actually pass a basket at the end of the service, so maybe I can get a volunteer or two to help me with that. And we'll also allow you, if you'd like to give, uh, in addition to our tithes and offerings, if you'd like to give to Dave specifically, uh, please feel free to do so. You can use our digital uh, options as well. Those of you who are online, by the way, welcome. Those of you who are watching us online, if you'd like to give towards Dave's ministry, you can actually give it to Living Hope, but just designate in the little memo section. Usually there's a memo section on the online giving. Uh, or you can send me an email, pastor at livinghopefamilychurch.com. That's pastor at livinghopefamilychurch.com. And just say, hey, I made a donation today of X amount, and that's specifically for Dave and his ministry. And we'll make sure that every penny that comes in for him goes to him. Without any further ado, would you please welcome Dave Smethurst. Lord, we pray for Dave. We ask for your grace and blessing on him. We pray that uh, you would pour out your, your blessing to us through this man of God. Thank you, Lord, for bringing him safely here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Take all liberty, Mike. Good morning, everyone. It is delightful to worship with you. I want to compliment the worship team and those who lead the worship because of the intelligent songs you sing. Look, I get around to places where I can't even consider it worship. <clears throat> the, the songs are unsingable. And uh, it was never meant to be like that. But um, I congratulate you for keeping the, the, the basis of uplifting Jesus, loving God, and serving each other in that context. Well done. A lot of churches, like you folk, that I've been associated with in the past, um, the leadership has changed, and um, pharaohs have arisen who don't remember Joseph. Um, I've been cut out of those churches. That doesn't bother me. But they tend to have gone astray on their first element of service. And that's to God. That's our first ministry, to God. With the fruit of praise. But he's a generous God. And as we're worshipping him, he's imparting to us fruit that we can give to others. So unselfish all around. Um, I would ask you if you'd like to take a copy of our latest news bulletin that is sitting on the counter there, just a simple little letter like this, describing the biggest need and the most fruitful ministry I have ever been involved in for the last 50 years. I can't believe it, Eric. You know, I must have been... Ten when I started in ministry. <laughs> Who am I trying to fool? <clears throat> uh, actually, the end of this year, it'll be 51. But um, beside the point, I'm learning and growing all the time. And um, the, <clears throat> the, the rarity of churches like yours is amazing. Because some of them have changed and they eventually shrivel in size because people aren't being fed. They aren't being challenged in the right direction. They're being produced a concert every Sunday. Some people find that very exhausting. 
So I've made some changes in our personal involvement at Home Church. I'm not the pastor there. But it's a church of islander people, big Samoans, Fijians, Vanuatu people. And uh, when I speak at the men's camps, I'm a midget <laughs> compared with these guys. And they come up to me afterwards and they pat me on the shoulder and almost dislocates my shoulder. And um, they say, little man, you've got a big heart. Do you need someone to carry your luggage? I'm a 10 suitcase man. And uh, I said, certainly, you're carrying a lot of clothing and provisions and medicines and uh, products like that for the orphans. Because many of you know that uh, <clears throat> 30 years ago, I started supporting orphans in Latvia. I was conned into it. <laughs> God is so subtle the way he leads you into stuff like that. Because I was just so busy. And Smithers Ministries wasn't set up as a charity. So two Russian pastors, who Pastor Eric knows, Susan knows them too, they're still around in Latvia, came begging me to support help them support two orphanages that the government, new government after communism, had dumped on the churches. You are God's agents. God meets your needs. Therefore, you look after the orphans. What a cop-out. And I wondered what happened to the money that was coming from Scandinavia into the health funds. However, um, <clears throat> they said, we can barely support ourselves. There's 350 children. We don't know what to do. And I said, all right, I'll come and have a look. look many of you know I'm an accountant and auditor by profession. I spoke at a Rotary Club in Western Australia two years ago, and I was fined by the chairman of the Rotary Club at the meeting for being an auditor with personality. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was me. But anyway, um, the, um, I, I, I constructed budgets, and they didn't know what a budget was. And I said, we stick to the budget. Some leeway either side. <clears throat> and two years later, the kids were healthier. <clears throat> And I, taking local teams, Susan was part of two local teams that uh, I took into Latvia, and she did a wonderful job. And <clears throat> uh, they still remember her today. Uh, teenagers who are married now with an array of kids of their own. Shows that you're dating when you, uh, you're getting older, when you meet the little kids that were running around calling you in orphanage, hello Dave. When they become teenagers, hello Mr. Smithers. But <clears throat> they, um, at the end of two years, I found I'd I was supporting three orphanages. How did that happen? End of the fourth year, I was supporting five orphanages. And suddenly I realized I'd been conned, quote unquote, into a destiny I didn't expect. I developed an attitude <clears throat> in the midst of that, that um, if I saw an opening and sensed God nudging me towards it, I wasn't sure about it. I'd have a go anyway, because I don't want to miss God's destiny. I don't want to arrive in heaven and be shown that, look, you missed so much. And so many people didn't come to Christ as a result. That, that would hurt me. So I'll have a go at it anyway. 95% of the time, I've been right. It unnerves my wife. She said, have you gotten involved in that project? I said, yeah, just go and have a look at it. And she knows she's making the adjustments already. It's just right up my alley. <coughs> well... Um, five percent of the time, I thought, well, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. I can do things mechanically, but I just don't have the unction to do it. I'm looking around off stage to see who's lurking in the wings, waiting to be introduced to their destiny, and I found that person every time. 
And some of them have done far better than me because they were the right person at the right time and the right culture. And <clears throat> that's what I'm trying to impart to you this morning. In an avenue of ministry, you may have considered don't know how to get into it and um, how to um, manage it. We're going to be dealing with some very prickly people. Don't be dissuaded by that because God wants you in that situation. That happened in Ukraine. I was doing seminars for the military of Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Ukraine in Latvia. The Brigadier General called me aside one day. I didn't know him. I won't mention his name. <clears throat> uh, a thorough Christian, but a train killer. He's got to defend his country, and if people are attacking, get killed. Well, I've been in situations. I've served in the military for two years in the commando unit. And uh, I know what that's all about. Thank God I didn't have to shoot at anyone in anger and kill anyone. But <clears throat> the um, Brigadier General said to me, I've got a ragtag bunch of military coming back from Afghanistan. They're shattered. Many of them lost limbs. Some of them were burying. 40% of the marriages have ended. Young wives can't take the pressure. He said, sir, I want to commission you to do this. I can't, we've got no budget for it. You're going to do it for nothing. Oh, so nothing's changed. And uh, <clears throat> he said, I'm giving you permission to preach the gospel in the psychological seminars you create. I would like to see some of the early seminars. And I sent him a package. The most precious one of all was how to win over stress at work, like in the military, and at home. And he said, I need that. I left them with him to read through. <clears throat> but he said... Uh, if you, you're, what I want you to do is help my troops to get rid of the fear of death. And I said, you mean you want me to bring them to Christ? He said, you read me well. He said, if any one of those petty chaplains feel threatened and oppose you for giving an altar call, report them to me. Nobody reported them. However, he said, one thing more. See if you can bring healing to those marriages. And that has been the biggest payday for me. I would take the commanders of some of those bases to lunch. We'd sit, <clears throat> four of us, in a restaurant, having a four-course meal, and find the bill was $35. That was the cost of living. And um, the commander had to agree to come to lunch with me because I'm older than him, and he showed respect. And I said to him, I'll call him Valdis. I said to him, Valdis, um, something's bugging you. He said, how do you know? I said. You ever heard of prophecy? He said, I have, and I'm frightened of it. <laughs> um, I dismissed the others from the table. I said, tell me what's bugging you. He said, I joined the military when I was a youngster. It was good pay, good insurance, good pension, and good payout if I'm killed. I did it for my family, but I'm, I'm totally absorbed, involved in the military. I don't spend much time with my family. I've messed up one marriage. And the second marriage is falling apart. And he started weeping. You don't try and soothe a guy like that. He's a tough man. And I said to him, what would bring you a great deal of joy right now? He said, if I could have a friendship back with my original, my first son and daughter from the first marriage. He said, we were good friends. I hurt their mother. I hurt them. And um, they're gone. He said, I miss them terribly. I said, I'll tell you what, give me their addresses. I'll write to them on my Australian letterhead, not on my US letterhead, not on my <clears throat> British letterhead, 
and they won't know who's writing. It'll be a blank letter. And I popped in the envelope my little um, following Jesus booklet, which is in nine different languages, including Russian and Latvian. And I put a little sticky note pointing to the center two pages on the issue of forgiveness. Forgiving someone you have something against, because if you don't, it's like you drinking a glass of poison and hoping to kill the other person. It doesn't work that way. And of course, when you don't forgive, you're blocking God from dealing with that person. You forgive them and put them in God's hands and step back. It's tough to do that. I have to say this in prayer with people who've really grieved me about 10 times before the message gets through to me. I know God accepts it straight away. <laughs> I sent those letters out. Didn't hear anything. I got, got to the base, secret training base. Uh, <clears throat> six months later, took him to lunch again. I said, Valdis, have you heard anything about it? He said, three months after you left last time. I got a call from my son. First time in 10 years. Dad, we've got to talk. A month later, he got a call from his daughter. Dad, we've got to talk. He met with them, it was most emotional. Asked their forgiveness and started the healing process. He found out from them that his first wife had got saved and she was attending a prayer group and all the prayer ladies were praying for him. <laughs> now that's a victory. A woman who's been deeply hurt, praying for her first husband. There was no chance of reconciliation. But they became friends. And they found out that the two wives, his present wife, was talking with the first wife. And she'd become a Christian as well. I thought, this guy didn't stand a chance. <laughs> he, his life changed. I didn't see him again for two years. I saw him one more time. He said, I'm leaving. I've got a huge promotion. It's part of a NATO organization. He got a huge promotion. They took his present family all out to Washington, D.C. And his final speech, he thanked God. And that, every, that surprised the commander of the base, thanking God. And he said, next time when Mr. Smithers comes, you pay attention. Don't ridicule him because he's angry with you. And he's threatened to come down and knock your lights out. I've seen that sometimes. And you, <laughs> He said, don't tangle with that little man. He was a boxer, and his father was South Africa's light heavyweight champion. You know, I wish he hadn't said that because guys want enough fight with me. <clears throat> However, when I heard that, that's payday. I don't get paid for that. Military doesn't pay me. They don't have a budget for it. But that was just one aspect. And the Brigadier General, when I returned after the first... I've, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've spoken to 88,000 troops, led many of them to Jesus. Now, what this hinged on was that. I said to the Brigadier General, why did you, Brigadier General, why did you choose me? I said, I know there are young guys in your nation who are far better communicators than me, and they know the language and the culture better than me. He said, sir, it's not about talent. It's about trust. He said, I found out you support our orphans. Therefore, I trust you with the lives of our troops. Wow, I didn't expect that. I realized <clears throat> that I'd stepped into a great portion of destiny in 1993 when I accepted that opportunity to support two orphans. My manager, Sasha, my main manager, he lives in Norway now, he said, <clears throat> I've done a little calculation. And he pulled out the graph, sheet of graph paper and stuff like that, and he used a special trigonometry formula. 
uh, which I once knew, I don't anymore. And he said, I've reckoned over the years with babies coming in, children coming in, children leaving, children dying, and, and uh, uh, going to the workforce and then getting married and having children of their own. He said, you've supported something like 94,000 orphans in the last 30 years. I said, no, it can't be. He said, there's the paperwork. Because for me, it's just one week at a time, dealing with one crisis and the next. For the last 20 years, we've been involved in Ukraine. Actually, the military in Ukraine opened up. 2014, 2016, when the Russian rebel, rebel army burst into eastern Ukraine and shot that Malaysian airline out of the sky. That was a silly thing to do. But um, <clears throat> the military, together with the Orthodox primate, the archbishop of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church met with me, and he said to me, this is a special meeting for you. And there were chaplains and psychologists and counselors there, and the Ministry of Sport was there as well. Uh, and he said, um, sir, do you understand the Bible interpretation of the word angel? I said, I do, sir. It's the word messenger. He said, I've written you a letter, beautiful handwriting, giving you permission to come into our nation to do anything you want to do. He said, I've mentioned in the letter that you are God's angel to us now. We're listening to what you've got to say. Oh. I didn't know how to cope with that. And uh, <clears throat> I, didn't, I wasn't, didn't have the energy to flaunt any arrogance. <clears throat> and he gave me a kiss on both cheeks. He looked like an older version of Willie Nelson <laughs> with long, bushy white hair. And, uh, but his, his blue eyes, I could see Jesus shining out of this man. And he had been the one who had cut the Ukrainian Orthodox Church away from the Russian Orthodox. And he was a marked man. He was on a hit list. But he's still alive. <clears throat> These are the things that have happened to me as a result of supporting orphans. And at the moment, well, <clears throat> about 12 years ago, I met a good friend of Eric's and mine, Peter Emelyanov. And he was a super guy. Humble man. You know, going back 30 years ago, I trained Vitali and Nadezhda in evangelism, in the Word of Truth Church. It was a phenomenal weekend. Six sessions, how to lead people to Jesus. That church went out in teams, hick teams, slightly choreographed, youth teams, ministers' teams, <clears throat> uh, men's teams, babushka teams. Nobody messed with the babushkas, the grandmothers. <clears throat> Vitaly and Nadezhda went to Novosibirsk in Siberia. <clears throat> One people to the Lord, trained people in evangelism, planted six churches, and then led Peter Emelianov to the Lord. So when Peter heard this, he was weeping. He said, so you kicked Vitaly in the butt and sent him to Siberia, and he led me to Jesus. Are the connections, you know, human beings can't connect this. Well, Peter and I became partners in this project of the House of Hope. It was a tiny building built from an old farmhouse about 15 years ago that had 30 people in. And over the years, we trusted God. We increased it to a six-story building that could take 250 kids. Got it finished in January this year, and a month later, the war broke out. Now, that's what this newsletter tells you about. What we have done with God's grace and the help of God's people to evacuate all the House of Hope kids. During the COVID time of two years, the House of Hope kids with um, 
the, the aid of drivers and vehicles, went out to 485 villages in the Odessa province where people were starving, taking them food, survival packs, medicines, uh, hygiene products, and Bibles. We probably bought about 80,000 Bibles, picture Bibles in the new Russian language. They'd been delivered into their hands. Now, they couldn't wait for the next team to come back in three weeks' time. Neighbours went, these poor people went to their neighbours and sat down and said, we've got some food for you. And what's that book? That's the Bible. You've got a Bible. It's like gold bullion. And they read it together. And all these people knew was, I'm saved. And they had the assurance of it. They led their neighbours to the Lord. Now, the House of Hope kids that we trained in evangelism over the years, they had no church protocol. I'm not pointing any fingers. No church protocol to get anywhere. All they knew was get out there, lead people to Jesus, and let them be sure that they're safe, because then they'll tell their neighbours. They said, this is lovely. Can we do this um, every week or every two weeks? And suddenly, house churches began to pop up. We didn't call them churches that would have messed with the Orthodox Church. Just called them, you know, we're meeting for a meal, and we're reading the Bible together. Those children led approximately 15,000 people to Jesus in two years. Teenagers who didn't know anything else. The neighbors were planting house churches. They got something like 350 house churches in the Odessa province. And some of the old pastors, they're 90s, 95, some over 100, who have memories back from their ancestors going 200 years, have said this is the biggest increase of God's word in 250 years in Ukraine. And it took a war and COVID to, to rattle the people to do it. I'm not saying God started the COVID infections in order to uh, get people's attention, but it can be taken advantage of. Now, this is where we're going this morning. A challenge to you. <clears throat> it was Father's Day in Australia last weekend, and I got my thoughts turning over this. And um, I want to take it further than just honouring fathers. Mothers too, because parents together have a big responsibility. And sometimes when the father is not being a father, the woman has to do it all. And I take my hat off to those ladies. To be parents in the faith. There are so many people in the faith who've never known a proper parent. And you can see the shadows in their lives and the fra uh, fragile structures. Now, if God brings someone to you that sort of doesn't intimate uh, too verbally that they want you to mentor them, they just want to be a friend. Don't brush them away. They've, come, they've seen something in your life they want guidance with. You could miss a huge opportunity that would stop a great number of people getting saved if that person's not helped. Um, if you are a parent and you have your own children, make sure you're mentoring them properly. Otherwise, you'll have no confidence, confidence to mentor somebody else. And you know, you won't have to go looking for someone who's looking for a father and mother in the faith. God will bring them to you. Now, don't turn them away because you're so busy. It's, when people come to me like this, at my, my busiest, constructing budgets, I don't like to be interrupted. But you can always set it aside and come back to it. I write everything down. I know where I've ended, I can come back to it. My suggestion is you put your busy project aside because that person is a human life for which Jesus died. My first visit 
to Northern Ireland in the 1980s. The Catholics invited me to Northern Ireland based on the work I was doing in the Christian Brothers schools in South Africa, normally the black schools. And the brothers, sitting talking with them in their um, offices afterwards, were all born again. In their desperation to serve God, they come to know Christ. And many of them have got filled with the Holy Spirit. They would say to me, David, do you speak in tongues? Because we have a prayer meeting in tongues at lunchtime. You're welcome to join us. They're Catholic brothers. <laughs> well, they opened the doors for me to go to Northern Ireland and to the Republic of Ireland. I was going every six months for four weeks, speaking, speaking six to nine times a day because their old colleges didn't have big halls. I had to take each form at a time. And um, I led hundreds of boys to Christ. I didn't speak to the girls. My wife spoke to the girls. And there was a young man by the name of Joseph from Armagh, Northern Ireland. Armagh was a closed city. You couldn't drive through it. I tried to once and had rifles pointed at me. Don't you? I said, no, I didn't know that it was a closed down. There have been so many car bombs in this place. You've got to drive around the city, sir. Where are you going? Going to St. Patrick's College up on the hill. He said, two turns, two rights, and you're there. And the guys laughed at me for being an idiot. So um, this guy, Joseph, latched onto me. Over three visits, he wanted to come around with me every year. He wanted, and it was a bit of a nuisance because I needed time on my own. But all I did was, uh, Joseph sucked it out of me, asking questions all the time. Why do you say that? Why do you do that? How did you relate to that archbishop? He's a mean man. And you had him doing what you wanted to do. <laughs> we have ways and means. And um, he learned from me. I didn't hear from Joseph for ages, for, for 10, 20 years. Then I found out he was a youth, with a, mission, a youth with a mission leader in some remote part of the country leading hundreds of people to Jesus. He was married. He had two children. He said, I actually got married, but on the basis of you, because uh, I heard some of your lectures on marriage, and I knew you were talking about you and your wife. He met Margarita one time, and he said, She's not someone you can mess with. You know, my wife grew up in a street fighting family. Her father wanted a son. He got a daughter, so he taught her to fight. And when I see her shifting her weight, look, I was a boxer. I was a welterweight boxer. When I see her shifting her weight and her left fist clenching, I step back. <laughs> she will deny that, but <clears throat> we joke about it. That, that was one of the guys that I did spend a bit of time with, and it was worth it. In 1993, Susan was there. No, in 2002, in Latvia. I've got a picture in front of you. I didn't pester Greg with a lot of pictures. Um, there were five teenage boys who were an absolute nuisance. Sasha, Andre, Dimitri, Alexei, and Andrew. If you saw them, you'd know them all. They're in top leadership today. They were little 15, 16-year-old squirts. They were nuisances. They turned up after school at the one-star hotel we stayed at. We couldn't afford a more expensive hotel. And um, they wanted to come with us for the afternoon. And they would wait. They could speak good English. They could interpret <clears throat> Russian and Latvian. They were assets. And with a team of 10, each couple had uh, an interpreter. We went to an orphanage, a village church, or a prison for a meeting. And they were super. But then when we got home, at 10 o'clock in the evening, the team went to bed, and I needed to go to bed. Early start in the morning for two weeks solid like this. Covered a lot of ground. These guys wanted to go walking. They had questions to ask. And I said, I like ice cream. 
He said, there are no gas, look, it's a year out of communism, no gas stations where you could buy cold drinks or coffee. It was a dark place. But he said, there's a family. Now, if it's getting to midnight, there's a family on the other side of the city. Let's walk there. We want to talk to you. And they woke the couple up, and they were happy to sell us ice creams. And <clears throat> they were asking things like, you cut your message in half. Because I sit down with my interpreters for 20 minutes beforehand, giving them a picture of where we're going. And um, they, they were ready to go. But you only used two points. I said, did you see the people tired and restless? I said, time to finish. I can pick up the two points somewhere else. OK, that's common sense. Then when you prayed over that one man, you were telling him his history. We didn't even know where he came from. Where would you get that from? Did somebody brief you beforehand? I said, no. That's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a word of knowledge. They knew, Pentecostal church, they knew nothing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, they'd come through an era of 56 years of communism, darkness, where the ministers never shared anything, never mentored anyone, in case the KGB got hold of the kids, tortured them, and they spilt the beans on the pastors, and they nailed the pastors and killed them, or sent them to prison. So nobody learned anything. And suddenly I realized I was mentoring these kids. One of these little kids, I won't mention his name, said to me, I've seen some pictures of your wife. She must have been a stunner when she was younger. She's a pretty lady now. He said, when you were dating, how did you manage to keep your hands off her? I said, with great difficulty. <laughs> and he said, well, picture the scene if you're on the back seat of a car together. I said, not going to happen. I didn't have a car for the first 18 months of my marriage. My wife married for me, not my car. And um, he said, but just think. I said, we had a policy. Whenever we were together, other people were all alone, we had an open Bible between us talking about the things of God. He said, that doesn't sound like fun. And I turned to swing at him. And if he hadn't been nimble, I would have clobbered him. He's married with three kids today, so he's doing well. Now, these guys, I'm so glad I gave them time. I called Sasha's father. And I said to him, Mr. Rodionov, I, he's a Jewish man. I said, um, I'm... I fear your son's going to slip behind with his schoolwork. He said, don't worry about that. He's done his homework a month in advance so he can serve you. You know what they did? They made themselves indispensable, especially Sasha. I can't do without him today. And I have a plan of succession that grew up around me. I didn't have to ask God, who do I plan to take my, my place? He could step into my shoes, especially in Europe, at a moment's notice. I get him to do all the groundwork now, and he does much better than me. My children love Sasha's children. And um, they, will, they will, actually my children love Sasha, because Sasha's younger than my children, and they will serve him. And my granddaughter, who comes with me on some of the missions, she's 18, she's two inches taller than me, and she loves that. She's friends with Sasha's children, three generations in this plan of succession. I didn't have to go looking for it. I'm not worried now. But anyway, there was a young man in the 1980s, early 1980s, by the name of Adam, in a Ramah-style church in Bloemfontein. Bloemfontein, hotbed of violence in the center of South Africa. And um, people would come to me in the evening and say, are you having a nice rest during the day ministering in the evening? I said, I'm out in the townships. I can minister to three to 5,000 Black, Sasutu, North Sutu, and Swana, um, uh, scholars every day by permission with the authorities and the headmasters. And then the following day, back for a, um, 
a follow-up. Well, <clears throat> there was a young man in the church by the name of Adam. Just got his driver's license, tall, thin guy. And the pastor said, Davey, he was using the pastor's little car. He said, let Adam drive you. That'll give you a break, driving on those dusty roads through the townships. I said, wonderful. Adam was great to help. He carried my bags of books and set up my projector for them and, and the power system. <clears throat> and um, the second day, dust had got in my throat. You got a thousand students turning up the dust off the, the quadrangle, play, play field. And uh, I felt I was sw swallowing razor blades. My throat was so sore. And I said to Adam, you've got to speak today. <gasps> He'd never done anything like that. He was a fairly new Christian. And although he was studying a little theological course, <clears throat> he said, I've never done anything like that. I said, you've got to do it. The kids are expecting it. I'll introduce you. And uh, look, you know how to share your testimony. Watch your time. And give the same altar call I gave yesterday. He made a couple of mistakes, but nobody noticed. And he was most surprised when 600 students raised their hands wanting to be saved. What do I do? I said, get them my little following Jesus book. And we're coming back tomorrow for a follow-up. Now, he did so well in three high schools that day, I deceived him the next day. I pretended to have the sore throat still. And I said, you're going to have to do it again. He stepped in like a champion. And I complimented him in front of the con his congregation back in Bloemfontein. First time he'd ever done that. <clears throat> he moved to Pretoria <clears throat> to get a job later on. Now, we'll skip ahead. 35 years. I'm talking about Art Boshoff. His first name is actually Adam. Art Boshoff is the guy's name. He pastored two big cathedral churches, one in Bloemfontein, one in Pretoria, 18 other churches around South Africa and in five other nations. He pastors 450,000 people. And I learned this from Philip, my nephew. They got together at a conference in Rodney's church, Rodney Hadbrand's church, where Art said to um, Philip, who's had the most impact on your life? Well, he said, my Uncle Dave. And Art said to him, who's Uncle Dave? He said, Dave Smithers. He said, I want to tell you what Dave Smithers did to me. He pushed me off the diving board in the swimming pool and I could hardly swim. <laughs> now, look. I can't claim much credit for that because <clears throat> um, he's had so many people mentoring him in his growth. But it's, it's nice to get a little bit of uh, <clears throat> uh, credit when you think you've done nothing. God's working behind the scenes. I mean, the, the person that God brings to you to help and to mentor could be the next world reformer. Nobody will know you on this planet, but your name is going to be on the scoreboard in heaven. God keeps ac accurate records. Um, <clears throat> who's head of George and Stephen Jeffries? Oh, I'm going to surprise you. They were the founders of the Elam Pentecostal Church movement in Britain and Europe. Powerful Pentecostal movement. George and Stephen were born in the 1880s. <clears throat> two feisty brothers. They got saved in the Welsh Revival in the Evan Roberts' ministry. And they heard from ancient reports of signs and wonders. And they thought, why is this not happening in Britain? And they began to seek God and pound on heaven's door. God, release your power. We will be your servants if nobody else was. And God opened up two generations for them to bring signs and wonders. They, they were fiery men. And um, 
they caused remarkable stuff. In fact, in May, I was in the first Elam church that George Jeffries founded up in East Ham, north uh, eastern London, where the Chinese churches I ministered to were renting the church. And I walked around the... This was George Jeffrey's first church, the Pioneer Church. Now, um, Reinhard Bonnke, you've all heard of Reinhard Bonnke. Okay. I worked with him on four occasions, and he got me into some scrapes. We're sitting in Rodney Howard Brown's church in 2009. It's calling all evangelists, anyone who wanted to learn evangelism. They had 2,000 people registered. Reinhardt was the keynote speaker. Everyone came because of him. So we're sitting in the uh, Rodney's um, uh, foyer, uh, talking, joking before the meeting, and Reinhardt turns to Rodney and he said, Rodney, I can do today and tonight, but I've got to go home. I've got to do something else in another part of the country. He said, Rodney, you, uh, Rodney said, you're here for the whole week. Everyone's expecting you. And Reinhardt said, David, you and I have done this before you take over. I prepared for four sessions. Suddenly I had to prepare for 14 sessions. And, um, well, Reinhardt shared in one of those meetings, I'm going to finish with this, that he was 21 years of age in 1962. He was leaving Wales, where he'd done theological college, and he had a day to spend in London, where he was, uh, uh, he couldn't, didn't have enough money for um, a guided tour. He was getting the train and the ferry back to Hamburg in Germany that night to join his parents. And the, um, he had a few coins in his pocket, so he bought bus passes. And he just got off one bus, got on another, went in a different direction, zigzags all over northern London. And then he decided to get off and stretch his legs. And he walked down this lovely lane of houses and gardens and hedgerows, and he saw a name on a gate, George Jeffries. He'd done a lot of reading about the Jeffries brothers. He said, could be coincidence. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of Jeffries in Britain, and George, millions of Georges in Britain. So he went and knocked on the door. And a very big woman uh, filled the doorway and said, yes. He said, is this the home of George Jeffries, the great evangelist who brought signs and wonders to Britain? And the woman said, yes, but he doesn't see anyone anymore. Go away. And a voice behind her said, let him in. God told me he was coming. <laughs> he spent 45 minutes with George Jeffries. George Jeffries made him kneel down, put his hand on his shoulder and pull him down. George was a short little man. And he passed his mantle over to Reinhardt. He prayed that. God, I want this man to have my mantle. You wonder how Reinhardt entered into his miracle ministry? It happened that way. And he said, walking away from there, God, how did I end up at George Jeffrey's home? And God said to him, Holy Spirit was your bus driver. <clears throat> well, Reinhardt got the ferry train and the ferry back home, got to Hamburg the next morning. His father met him at the station. Now, the father didn't know what had happened. The father said, we just got a call from the pastor. George Jeffrey's passed away last night. Love God's timing. He passed the mantle over and passed away. He went to heaven. Reinhardt continued his ministry. I wonder who's... Because Reinhardt passed away a couple of years ago. And I wonder who's going to step into his shoes.
And there's somebody there, but it's got to be bigger. Now, <clears throat> the uh, I'm going to mention this. I know I've, I've finished up. But please pray for Peter Emelianov. I mentioned him in the beginning. Um, he's broken the hearts of the House of Hope kids by just giving up in Germany and going back to Russia. And he knows he's made a mistake. I'm not going to show you any pictures because he's on a hit list in Russia. His wife is on more of a hit list because she's Jewish. And I've said to him, Peter, I'll get you out. He's fearful, looking over his shoulder all the time. He said, I made a mistake. He went home to see his mother. And we're trying to get him out secretly. So I'd ask you to pray for Peter Emelianov. We need him out. I don't want him killed. Because if the authorities find out who he is and what he's done in Ukraine, they'll kill him. So <clears throat> it's a case of reaching out to someone God brings into your company and mentor them with suggestions, with help, with guidance. Don't try and control them. You'll lose them. Let them be their own person with God. You know what you're doing? You're bringing them home. The US Marines have a code. No one is left behind. We bring everyone home. And I want you to see, I want you to watch this little song from Les Miserables. One of the operetta songs sung by Calabro, the team in a Christian team that won Britain's Got Talent in 2014. And I'm going to finish with that and just let you receive it. Thanks, Greg.
I put the ball in your court now. There are people longing to be brought home. They might already be in your company. They might just be to come in. But bring them home. And mentor them as best you can. Because the ongoing reward will go on your record in heaven. But that's beside the point. You could bring to Christ and help the next world reformer. Nobody will know you. They know his name. But in heaven, God is the rewarder. God bless you. Thank you for listening.